sobering and encouraging words in this passage. How are we to understand them in our our day-to-day experience? Let me give you an illustration. It's not a perfect illustration, but um, how many of you have ever ridden a roller coaster? Okay. Maybe those of you who haven't ridden a roller coaster, I think most of us have ridden in an airplane, similar type of analogy. You are excited about it, right? So we had the opportunity to do this earlier this year in March. You get close to the front of the line, depending on how busy it is and all that. might have been a really long line, a long wait, and you draw close to this thing that you're about to experience. Then you go a little bit further and you sit down and you strap on a seat belt or the safety bar comes down and it locks you in place. But even though it should hold you, what do you usually do? You hold on tight. Okay? And if you've got somebody next to you, if it's one of those that's side by side, what sometimes happens then too? You're hanging on to each other too, right? And that can happen in an airplane, unless it's real bad weather, not as much as the roller coaster, but it can happen in an airplane as well. So when we look at this passage, get in close, hang on tight, huddle up, hold to each other as well, right? That's what we see here going on in this passage. Draw near to God, hold fast to faith, consider how to encourage each other. These are all based on what we've seen of Jesus and what's true of him in the past three or four chapters of the book of Hebrews. He is the perfect priest of a perfect temple because he was the perfect sacrifice for his people. Because of that, we are able to do all of these things by way of application that are talked about, particularly in verses 19 through 25. So verses 19 through 25 are the commands, and then verses 26 through 39 develop the reasons a little bit further why we're supposed to live this way. So let's talk about the first thing, how to inherit the promises by getting in close. Look at chapter 10, verse 22. In the first part of it, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Okay? So that's the first aspect of, because these things are true, by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way, since we have a great priest, let us draw near. Why should we get in close? Because Jesus' blood gives us access, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Apart from blood, as we saw earlier in the passage and in previous chapters, there was not a safe passageway for God's people to approach God's holy presence, right? But because Jesus has shed his blood, we have access to God. And not just access that we can draw near, but that we can approach God directly. Jesus' death made a way for us, verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And this is where, I think we talked about two weeks ago, there's a little bit of of a mixed metaphor from the perspective of the analogy to the Old Testament sacrifices was the priest would sacrifice the animal outside of the tabernacle, Then he would take that sacrifice, at least the blood of the sacrifice, in through the veil and sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant, the altar where God's presence was, right? He would do this once a year for the sins of the people, according to God's command. The analogy is imperfect, though, because in the case of Jesus, 
He is the sacrifice outside the camp, outside the tabernacle. He is the veil. His body is the veil through which one must enter because it opens the way to God. But he is also the priest who's in, who enters into the most holy place. And so Jesus is connected both with the sacrifice and the priesthood and the tabernacle all in one person. And that's what brings together all these ideas we've been looking at the last three weeks. And that's where, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about when he enters in um, the holy place, are we talking about his body? Are we talking about heaven? Well, there's an element of both because it's all united in his one person. He is opening this path to God, into heaven itself, into God's very presence. Why should we draw near to God? Because Jesus opened the way to God. And not just did his blood open the door and his death open the way, but his ongoing ministry keeps it open, right? Why do I say that? Verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God. Earlier in Hebrews, what does it say? He lives to always make intercession for us. There's that song where it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there. Why? Because when Satan accuses us, Jesus says, Yes, that person is a sinner, but I paid for his sin. Yes, that person is guilty, but I've dealt with his guilt. Yes, that person still sins, but as he seeks forgiveness, I continue to forgive him. So Satan, you have no power here. You cannot bar that person's access to God because I am holding the way open on their behalf. So, get in close because Jesus opened the way. Get in close furthermore by or with pure faith. Notice what it says. A sincere heart, verse 22, full assurance of faith, heart sprinkled clean. Okay? So this is not a tentative faith. We talked about this on Wednesday night, right? In our discussion of our book on prayer. We talk sometimes about hope like, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. That's not the kind of full assurance, right? If, if you're like, well, you know, there's a 20% chance this is going to happen. That's not good enough, right? We can have full confidence, 100% assurance, complete security that Jesus wants us to draw near and has made it possible for us to draw near and that we should draw near and that we will draw near. Full assurance of faith. Furthermore, it is a sincere heart. This is in contrast to so much of what we see in the Gospels, for example. There are those who profess to follow God, but they were just doing the outward rituals and didn't really believe in Him. That's not a sincere faith. If you just come to church because everybody else is watching, that's hypocritical. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the Sadducees did. They didn't care about the law and the prophets. They cared about political power and having people think well of them. And so, as I was saying in Sunday school, the danger for us is we could have someone who outwardly looks like a really great person and inwardly cares nothing for God. 
And we could have someone who inwardly believes in Jesus, but maybe because they've got a lot of things to deal with in their Christian life, or maybe because they're struggling or whatever else, they don't look like a Christian to us on the outside. We'd come here and pat this person on the back, and Jesus says in Matthew 22, if that person doesn't repent, the one that's doing the outward stuff but doesn't believe in Him, if they don't repent, they're on their way to hell, this person's on their way to heaven, and we hug this person and push this person out. That's the danger for us, right? And so we need to be careful because a sincere faith is important. It's not enough just to have outward works that look like faith, but a sincere faith. And you know what? I grew up in Christian circles all my life. There's a lot of people who are really good at faking it. They know the right things to say. They know the right things to do. They know what not to do. So if, if you think that your ability to draw near to God is because you were born in the right family, you went to church all your life, you know the right things to say, this passage says you only draw near to God with a sincere faith. So is that the sort of faith that you have? But furthermore, a clean faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from two things, an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, the imagery here is not take a bath so you can come to church. Let me start with the second part of that. The imagery here is just as there were cleansings in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews is drawing a parallel between the waters of baptism as being an outward sign of cleansing. It does not save you to be baptized. It does not save you to be baptized in the right way. We're a Baptist church, but it doesn't save you to be baptized in the right way. That's false teaching. But what it is, is a picture of the inward cleansing that's supposed to have happened in your heart. And it ties back to those Old Testament pictures. So when the Pharisees got mad at Jesus' disciples, you guys didn't do all the cleansings before you ate. It wasn't you didn't wash your hands, you're going to get sick. It's you didn't follow the rules, you didn't do all the cleansing. And Jesus says, you know what? The problem is not, did we do all these external things? The problem is, is your heart right? Right? And yes, as Israelites, they were supposed to follow the outward rituals, but it's not the outward ritual that makes you clean, it's Jesus within you. In the same way, and perhaps even more importantly, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That was the whole argument that we looked at uh, two weeks ago in terms of the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Old Testament priests could not deal with sin in such a way that the Israelites could ever have a completely clean conscience in God's sight. Could they be right with God? Yes. But could the animal sacrifices deal with their sin in such a way that they could with confidence have a clear conscience before God for an extended period of time? No. Because every time they sinned again, they would have to make another sacrifice, and another sacrifice, and another sacrifice. Jesus makes one sacrifice that is the basis for an ongoing cleansing of the consciences of his people. Not just an external ceremonial ritual cleansing, but a real, actual cleansing of the soul. And that's what enables us to draw near to God. A pure, clean faith. What are obstacles to possessing that today? Well, if you have sin you don't deal with before God, it does not remove the fact of your relationship with Him, 
but it certainly creates an obstacle, at least from your side of things, to drawing near to God with a clean faith, right? If, if I'm in my heart looking at someone and, and I see that person, I'm like, I'm angry at that person, right? I'm not pointing at anybody, I'm just gesturing, right? Just so you're clear. Uh, I look at that person, I say, I'm angry at that person. I have hatred for that person in my heart. Can I be drawing to God in clean faith? No, because there's this sin that needs to be dealt with. Not ultimately dealt with, like, get saved again. Not ultimately dealt with, like, me try harder to be a better person. That's the false gospel that society offers us today. Be better, do better, whatever, be nicer. You can't do that. And that's not really the point anyway. The point is keep going back to that one sacrifice of Christ as the basis for dealing with any sins that occur in our lives. And we have opportunity to do that in connection with this service. We ought to be doing it more often than once a month. But we have opportunities to examine our hearts and say, is there sin in my heart that I have not dealt with before God? Bitterness against someone that I know. Hatred towards someone I don't like. Lust towards someone that I'm envious of. Greed towards something that I want and don't have. The list goes on. Many sins that could come up. But... Dealing with those sins, in fact, Jesus having dealt with those sins, is what enables us to have a pure faith to get in close, to draw near to God. So we're drawing close, and then we are in the midst of the experience. Right? So number two, hang on tight. Verse 23, hold fast without wavering. To what? First of all, to the hope that we confess. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Well, what hope are we talking about? Well, this is a hope that is uh, secure and confident and which enters within the veil, right? This is uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So what's our hope? Our hope is in Jesus. What we confess is we trust Jesus. And we need to hang on to that. And uh, this is not Jesus plus something else, right? This is not Jesus plus being a good person. This is not Jesus plus supporting a particular cause. This is not Jesus plus any number of things that we want to add to what Jesus has done because we feel like it's going to tip the scales a little bit more in our favor. This is Jesus only is our confession, our hope, what we are holding on to without wavering. So that's what we hold on to, but why do we hold on tight? Verse 23, He who promised is faithful. I'm going to hold on. You, you guys see the, uh, it was an inspirational poster that was around a lot when I was younger. You know, the kitten hanging off the limb, right? You guys have seen that one? You know what I'm talking about? Something along those lines? Hang in there. That's not the picture of this. The picture of this is you pick up your cat and the cat's got their claws dug into your shoulder and they're hanging on to you but you're holding them up. And you're the cat, and you think that you're holding yourself onto the person that's holding you, 
and God is the person who's actually holding you. He who promised is faithful. See the difference? This is self-righteousness. I'm doing it myself, and this is what's actually happening. You hold on, because you're told to hold on, but God's the one who upholds you. And that ought to give us confidence, right? Because if it's my effort, what happens? I get tired. I let go. I am weak. God does not. He is faithful. Even when we are not. It says in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, if we deny Him, He cannot deny Himself. He is faithful. So, get in close. Hang on tight. Huddle up. Not just... Me and Jesus, but me with the church, together with Jesus, right? And this is the part that I think is often lacking in our individualized and self-sufficient society. I think, if anything, the last six months have taught us that we might think that we're good without other people, but when it drags on long enough that you're not around other people, we realize that there's something missing in the way that God made us to be, right? And so there's a very important aspect of our ministry to one another. Verse 24, the command, let us consider, let us think about, let us plan how we are going to do this. What is the this we're supposed to do? To stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. So, when we gather which is what it talks about in verse 25, we often have the idea that the point of being here is the whole point. We wouldn't say that, but we fall into that pattern often, right? If I have come to church, and I've been more or less on time, and I more or less look like I woke up and made an attempt to be here, then I can check off the box and say I've done what I'm supposed to do, right? God calls us to a whole lot more than just showing up on time and being in the pew and listening to the sermon and paying attention and all that. Those are good things, right? But He calls us to consider, plan, think about how to push those around us onward into love and good works. So what does that look like? Well, the song that we sang right before the message. Forgive as He forgave. Encourage one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a whole bunch of commands the Bible gives us. Sometimes people refer to them as the one another commands. Love one another. Admonish one another. Help one another. Pray for one another. Gather with one another. There's a lot of things that we're supposed to be doing toward one another in the context of the church. And I will argue that you cannot do them if you are watching church on your TV or your laptop or listening to it on the radio at home. Why? Because you are lacking the connection with God's people if you are there by yourself alone. And if you translate the attitude of our society, which is church is optional or it's something that I can tune into when I feel like it, if you translate that into your church experience when we're all gathered together, we're not going to be working toward spurring each other on to love and to good works. Furthermore, if we're going to spur each other on to love and to good works, what needs to happen? We need to be having conversations that have a little bit of depth to them. So what does this demand? It demands effort, 
It demands time. It demands unselfishness. Why does it demand effort? Because if we're not in the habit of it, we have to walk up to someone and have a conversation with them and then turn it to something that is of importance. Is the weather a facet of something that God's made in the world? Yes. Does it have a huge amount of bearing on the direction of the rest of your life? No. Is what you did yesterday bad to discuss? No. Is it going to help the person love and express good works more before God? Not necessarily. So then that goes to the second part of what I just said, which is time. It usually takes us a few moments to, for our conversations to sober up from how was the weather, what did you do, all those sorts of things, to what's actually going on in your life. Right? We cannot probably accomplish what this passage is calling us to accomplish in like 30 seconds on our way out the door. Because what's going to happen? How are you doing? Good, great, all right, see you next week. That's about all you have time for in 30 seconds, right? It needs time. Sometimes it needs a smaller group, right? Because maybe the person's not comfortable talking to you about something serious when there's six people standing around versus when there's two people talking to each other. Um, so we need effort. We need time. We also need a willingness to be uncomfortable, right? Like I said, if you're out of practice in this or if you've never practiced this and you go from what did you do this week to what does God have to say about your discouragement this week? That's a pretty big jump, right? There's a measure of trust that has to be built with that other person. There's a measure of willingness of both people to enter into the process. But if this is what God calls us to do as a church when we are together, we need to do it, right? We can make excuses and be like, oh, I should do it, I should do it, I should do it. Do it! Right? And I don't always do it. And you don't always do it, but we need to do it more because this is what God has called us to do. To encourage one another to love and to good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. There have been a lot of people who have not understood why it's important for churches to gather over these last six or eight months. Why? Well, for one, because if you are devoted to your religious practice, you're considered kind of fanatical or fringe or strange by most people, right? It's okay to be religious, but not so much that people it, it bothers anybody, right? So there's that part of it. And the other part of it is because we've treated the gathering as optional for so long in American Christianity, or we have made excuses for it for so long, or we've made such an emphasis on attendance instead of why we're gathering together, or maybe some other reason that I haven't named here. All of these factors together contribute to why we see it as not really a big deal. So there are churches who are like, yeah, we're good doing Zoom meetings, or not doing anything for the next year, because... It's not really a big deal. You can express your faith privately, and that's good enough. And honestly, that's better for society because it doesn't bother anybody. That's not what God calls us to do. 
Genuine biblical Christianity cannot be exercised alone by yourself for an indefinite period of time. So people want to want to come up with the exceptions. Well, let's say someone is shipwrecked on an island and, and they don't have anybody there with them. Can they do all these? You're not shipwrecked on an island. Right? We can come up with a thousand hypotheticals, but usually those are excuses for us not to do the thing God wants us to do. Right? So, why do we gather? Because so many of the one another commands cannot really be accomplished sitting at home by ourselves, never having contact with other church members. So let's talk about some practical implications of this, right? Do we have to assemble? I've just said yes. Can we do all of what we must do in smaller groups? Or to put it another way, uh, if a church in California that's 5,000 people is told by the health department you can't assemble, do they have to assemble? I mean, in a theoretical, ideal world, there wouldn't be that conflict. It would be like it was when the Spanish flu happened and people said, we want to gather, and they said, we don't think you should do it for a month, and the churches said, okay, and then when the month was up, the health department said, all right, go ahead and gather, and there was great rejoicing, and there was more of a close cooperation between government officials and churches. That happened in Washington, D.C., at least according to some accounts that I've read. What has happened now is completely different. It's not a month and things are back to normal in terms of your religious practice. It's now churches are having to go to court to sue for basic rights that are guaranteed them by the Constitution and by their own state governments, but are being taken away from them by people who in the name of health are saying, well, you shouldn't do this, it's bad for your health. So let's play this scenario out. I'm not denying that coronavirus is real. I acknowledge that. There are people who have died from it. That's bad. That's tragic. We should not want to see people die of it. Everyone will die sooner or later. You are not magically protected by sitting at a table when you get into a restaurant, but when you're standing up, it can get you when you sit down, it can't. You are not magically protected because you gather in a large group to protest what you see as injustices in society, but when you sing in church, you're trying to kill people. These are bizarre and unfair and ridiculous assumptions that people are making to advocate for things that they think are good versus things that they think are bad. And what it boils down to is they have said things that we like are good and things that we hate are bad, and we hate Christianity, so it's bad. And whether it rises to the level of the state of California or other groups specifically targeting churches, more often than not, it's not necessarily a specific persecution of churches, but at some places it has risen to that level. Why is this important? Because if we believe what this passage is saying, at some point, if things continue the way that they are, whether it's in a year or in 20 years or in 50 years, the church is going to have to wrestle with the reality of what does it look like to obey this passage in an increasingly hostile society. And I don't think we need to get a martyr complex and be like, at the moment, we have it so much worse off than everybody else because there are people who will literally die if they get caught assembling for church in other countries, and we're not anywhere close to that at this point. But we could be down the road, and so we need to say, what does this passage call me to do? 
This passage does not call us to have a nice church building that we have tax-free, that we uh, enjoy and is really nice and all those sorts of things, right? That's not what this passage calls. It says we have to gather. It doesn't say we get to gather where it's air-conditioned or where it's warm, where it's nice and not raining, where it's a dedicated building, where it's not expensive or costly or difficult. In fact, the New Testament would argue that more often than not, the church has to gather especially and in spite of all those obstacles. So the thing that you and I have to wrestle with is when it costs us something to gather, to do the ministry that God has called us to do as believers, are you still going to do it? That's not an easy question to answer. That's not something that I necessarily feel ready for personally. I hope that I will do what God has called me to do at that point if it comes during my lifetime. But there are going to be real and particular struggles of what it will cost, not just me, but my family and people that I know, if I do what the Bible says to do in connection with this passage. And for people who have grown up largely thinking that Christians are protected and even valued in our society, that's a difficult thing to wrestle with, right? But it's something we need to wrestle with. So I'd ask you this question. If you say, I'm not sure if I'm ready to gather with God's people if it means giving up all this, what do you need to do to get ready? What do you need to be convinced of that's true about God? What do you need to be convinced of that's true about the hope that has been promised you in Jesus so that you can be ready to assemble with God's people even if it costs you your job, your house, your car, your church building, your tax-exempt status, your status in society, your friendship, your family, all of these things. Why do I say that? Look at verses 32 and 33. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. If that's not where you're at, and because I know that's not where my heart is often at, we need to wrestle with this passage and think about what it means and how we can be where these believers were at in terms of their relationship with God and with one another. So, gather together. Why? It's not just gather for the sake of gathering. Verse 25, the last phrase, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day are we talking about? The day of Jesus' return. People have tried to predict when this will be many times over and their predictions have been wrong. So the point is not to say it's going to be tomorrow or next week or on this particular date in 2021 or whatever else because of these secret numbers and calculations that I've done. That's not the point of it. The point of it is people want to talk about society as though things are getting better. And uh, the idea that society was getting better was really popular around the turn of the century. And then what happened? World War I, World War II, what's happening now, since then. There's a lot of reasons to think that society is not trending upward. That's the humanist idea. If we just all stick together and band together, we can do amazing things in the world around us. 
And the reality is, yes, if people work together, more things get accomplished than if they fight all the time. But ultimately, this will fail. Why do I say this? Look at the Tower of Babel. Human ingenuity and effort apart from God's approval will fail. And people are like, well, the problem is your pessimism about society today. No, the problem is sin, and you don't believe God's timeline of what he said is going to happen. So if we know God's timeline, society will get worse and worse. Men will be lovers of selves, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money. All of the things that Paul talks about and warned Timothy about. If we see that in the world around us, what should that encourage us to do? Complain on Facebook? Complain to each other? Mope around? No. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. If you think Jesus' return is getting closer, pour more effort into encouraging one another so that we are strong and ready to face what God has called us to face. So I said those were the three commands. Get in close. Hang on tight with each other. Why? Two reasons. The first is a severe warning about God's judgment. Do these things because if you fall away, you face a greater judgment than the Israelites of old. We see this in verses 26 through 31. What things do we see? God is the judge. When it says, verse 27, a terrifying expectation of judgment. And verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. God is the judge. God is going to evaluate us. And so, if you know all that you know, and if you have received all that you have received, and you just turn away from it, God's going to hold you accountable for your response to the truth that you have received. Disobeying Moses meant severe punishment. Verse 28, anyone who set aside the law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If the law of Moses said something like, be circumcised, or honor your father or mother, or do these sacrifices, and they rejected the law of Moses and did their own thing, they could be stoned outside the camp if two or three witnesses said, this is what this person is doing, they have rejected the law. So if there was that severe punishment for the old system under Moses, and the author of Hebrews has been making a really big point, Jesus is far greater than Moses, what's the logical conclusion? The punishment for rejecting Jesus is far greater than the punishment for rejecting Moses. So fear God's judgment even more because of your greater knowledge and the privilege that you have received of seeing Jesus' ministry through God's word and knowing all the truth that you have and all of the many benefits that we have in connection with God. This is a sobering warning. What's this supposed to do? The warning is supposed to produce this effect. If you know God, the warning motivates you to be serious in your pursuit of God. If you don't know God, the warning motivates you to say, I need to know God. So the point of the warning, we sometimes look at it and we're like, well, the point is, can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? The point is not to have a theological debate. The point is to follow Jesus more fervently, whether for the first time or going back to your former seriousness and fervor in following God, like John admonishes the churches in Revelation. So not only should we do these things because of the severe warning, but also because of the encouragement, the great encouragement that he gives in verses 32 through 39. You've already begun well, the author of Hebrews says to his audience. 
So do these things because you've already got off to a good start, right? What is true? The Christian life has suffering. We talked about that a moment ago. Public spectacle, seizure of your property, and many other things like this. The Christian life has a cost. And if you have already acknowledged that and reckoned that, calculated that into your experience of following Jesus then that's a step in the right direction. So the author of Hebrews is saying, so build on that. Realize and be reminded again that it's worth it to follow Jesus and receive what he's promised. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, it's worth it to follow Jesus and receive what he's promised. Why do we sometimes think it's not worth it? Because we're like little kids. Little kids are like, I see food on the table. I'm going to eat all of it right now because it's right here, right now, and I want it right now, and and this is all. I've got to have it. As adults, hopefully, we have the foresight to recognize that there are good things later sometimes when we wait for them than if we just have to have everything right here in this moment. So let's compare what we can have right now with what Jesus has promised. What we can have right now is the approval of people around us if we set aside Jesus. But here's the danger. The approval of people around us is a really fickle thing. What I mean by that is you might be the best person in the world this week and as soon as they find something that you've done that they don't like, You're not the best person anymore. You're the worst person. And so if you live for that, that's an empty hope and promise, right? And it's it's ironic because there is no redemption apart from Jesus. And there is especially no redemption in our society where anything and everything you do stays with you forever, ruins your political career, ruins your life, There is no forgiveness in in the society that we live in. But Jesus offers true and actual forgiveness for the sins and the wrong things that we have done that are actually sin, not just societal faux pas and missteps. What other things are offered right now? Power. You can rise up through the ranks of your political party. You can have a higher position at your job. You can, whatever it might be. Again, what happens? Best case scenario, you do it for a fixed period of time and then you die. Worst case scenario, you try it and someone decides they don't like you and again, your career plummets and is destroyed. What does Jesus offer? I'm coming in my power and glory and you can share in my kingdom and there's nobody that can stop my kingdom. We don't join Jesus' kingdom just because he wins. But that's a pretty powerful motivation. Do you want to have power for a little while that can be easily taken away from you in the next election or when you get fired or whatever else, when someone's mad at you? Or do you want to be with Jesus against whom the kings of the earth can say nothing and whose kingdom will never come to an end? Temporary versus eternal. Power People liking you. Money. Okay, let's live for money. 
So I've got money. What can I do with it? I can buy things. Okay. What happens to those things? They break. So then I can buy more things. So then I can work to get more money to buy more things that break. Does that seem silly to anybody else? We don't step back and look at it. But that's basically what society offers. If you work really hard, you can have lots of money to buy lots of things that will break, and then you can replace them, and then you can start it all over again. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God's provided for us, but if our entire life is focused on the pursuit of acquiring things, you get it, and then you're immediately dissatisfied, and you're chasing after the next thing, and that's a pointless pursuit. What does Jesus offer? True riches and rewards for those who have faithfully followed Him a uh, 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 heaven and a new city, a new heaven and earth that is filled with beauty, lasting treasure that cannot be corrupted, that is not this pointless cycle of consumerism. Pleasure. We chase after pleasure in many forms, right? Part of my personal pursuit of pleasure is finding lasagna that was as good as the lasagna that I ate on our honeymoon. Do you know why I'm never going to find it? Because of when it was and the circumstances of my eating it, not because of the thing itself. And that's true of every single pleasure we chase after in this life. It will never be what we want. But you know what Jesus offers? The pleasure and the glory of worshiping Him, which is what we were actually made to do. And what will actually bring the fulfillment and fill the void in our souls. God has set eternity in their hearts. And that eternity can only be satisfied by the eternal God. So, you've started well. You need to weigh what is coming as more valuable than what is or what could be right here and now. Your race is short compared to eternity, verses 37 and 38. In a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. So for us, it seems like a really long ways down the road, right? But for God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. God is outside of time. And so from his perspective, the span between our lives now and the return of Jesus is not nearly as long as we make it out to be. God wants his people to finish well. My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then the confident expression of the author of Hebrews, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith the preserving of the soul. What is the tone of this passage? Despite the severe warning and despite the context of persecution, the tone of this passage is a strong hope that God is going to finish what he's begun in his people and that they can and should finish well. So sometimes we just park on the warning and we're like, try harder and stop doing what's wrong. And The hope is not ultimately in ourselves to stop all of those things, although by God's grace we will. The hope is... God's going to finish what he's promised. Well, that's kind of what we've been talking about all through the book, right? God has made these great promises. Jesus is the means by which God fulfills those promises. So if you are connected with Jesus, God's going to keep his promises and you can and should inherit them. So, get in close, hang on tight, huddle up, don't quit, receive the promises. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this passage, conclusion of a long section we've been looking at this past month. Help us to do what you're calling us to do by your power, for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.